You sure you're ready for this? I'll do my best. Your best? Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Mr. Bond. James Bond. Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. Never lose your temper. If your head comes away from your neck, it's over. Be careful what you shoot at. Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. It has been from Burt Reynolds to Minnie Driver, but boy, oh boy, oh boy, those celebrities did not know the right answer to any of your questions. No, they did not. They were very stupid. Well, you got that right. Well, 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 two Trebecks. I feel like I'm in a Raisin Bran commercial. Two scoops of fruit. Back off, Connery. I don't have to take that from you. I guess it's true. Old nutty couples do start to look alike. Okay, please. Friends, nerds, drinking buddies, I come to bury Connery, not to praise him. What up, everybody? This is John Patrick MCP, the Master Control Program, here with always as my good sidekick, Rojan. Greetings, programs. And we are here for issue three of Old Nerds Drinking. The official drink of fall and today's episode of Old Nerds Drinking is my personal hot toddy recipe. Yeah, good clink on that one. Uh, this is two ounces of bourbon, one ounce of lemon juice, a spoonful of honey, and then you just top off a big old mug with really dark Earl Grey tea. Keeps you warm and clears the sinuses. I don't know if I like it or not. It's not bad. It's not great. Maybe would changing the bourbon have a perhaps a different flavor and effect on the flavor, or is there just not enough of it in there? Or I mean, it might. It's two ounces of, in this particular batch, I used New Holland Distillery's Beer Barrel Bourbon. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, that's kind of a middle-of-the-road, milder bourbon. Maybe I want more honey in it or something. Maybe it needs to be a little bit sweeter for me. Maybe and yeah, that's what it is. You, you can tinker around with it. I mean, it's interesting. It's not bad. Mm -hmm. it's, it's better than the canned whatever the fuck it was that we were drinking last time. That oh, was here. The, the whiskey lemonade. Oh, that was horrid. That stuff was so bad. Yeah, I know, because I found your undrunk can over yeah, on your station. I know. It was horrible. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> it was really bad, though. <laughs> it was basically whiskey seltzer with, like... Yeah, but it didn't taste good at all. It didn't. Like this is this is market, markedly better than that, of course. Oh yeah. So yeah. this is a very good um, this is a good wintertime drink. Plus, it's the fancy ass Earl Grey tea that I get. It's imported from the UK. You know, I've got about a gallon and a half of of freshly distilled moonshine sitting at home right now. I know you do. Experiment with. Unfortunately for my taste, you ruined it by mixing it with apple juice. I made apple pie. 
I, I also have a margarita one that I make. Which... Yeah, like I'm down for the margarita, but I absolutely despise apple flavor. That's fine. I've got other ones. I can make a root beer one because I, I may or may not have two electric stoves and I may or may not have distilled something down for, for legal purposes. We'll just state that it is water. It is legal for you to make it. For personal consumption, you cannot sell it. it. Correct. Yes, so two electric five-gallon stills. And I'm always like, look at all the moonshine that I got. And then I hardly ever drink the shit. So, yeah, you know. I know. I want to come over just so I can drink, like, old hillbilly moonshine. I'll just bring it over here. (laughs) I'll find a couple of recipes and we'll bring them over here. And we'll, you know, actually, we'll make the root beer one before we do a show. Yeah. We'll do one. We'll do that. We'll use the homemade moonshine. This stuff came out really, really smooth because, um, not to get off topic, I'll make this quick, but this is the first time I ever used my house to distill it at. I was always doing it at a buddy's house. They moved, and I had to go bring the stills home, and since they're electric, I don't have to worry about, there's no open source of flame, so I have to worry about blowing my house up. So I had to rig up this crazy contraption with a garden hose on the ceiling to run water into it and the regulators and stuff. It worked phenomenal. It, it distilled it at a nice low temperature, so it's a very smooth moonshine. It's probably one of the best ones that I've made yet, if I were, in fact, distilling moonshine. <laughs> But I'm not, even though I just did. Anyways, moving on. Let's moving go. On. So we have to start this uh, episode with a, a lot of sadness. Over the uh, the break between episodes, we lost two beloved icons of the nerd world. We lost uh, Sean Connery and Alex Trebek. Mm-hmm. You know, the funny thing is with, with Sean Connery, I was just like a month or two ago talking with somebody and I was like, is he still alive? Because he has been so far out of the public eye, I was—I figured he was probably in a nursing home somewhere. Well, his last movie was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, which really wasn't a great movie to go out on. That's the sucky part. Nope. and That in, was, like, not a good movie to go out and on. And, in fact, it was such a terrible experience, that movie is what convinced him to just be done with acting. Yeah, that's sad. That's really sad. Because, you know, honestly, I mean, I remember seeing Entrapment. And thinking, man, he was looking old in Entrapment. And then after that, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came out, and I was like, wow, he he looks fairly healthy and spry in this movie. And it was Mm. just a terrible movie. The last couple that he did weren't that great. What was the last great Sean Connery movie you think he made? I know the one that I've got in my head that, that sticks out in me. I want to say The Rock, but possibly Dragonheart. I don't remember what mm. order those came out in. I'm going to go with The Hunt for Red October. Hunt for Red October is before both of those. But that for him, that that was the last great Sean Connery movie for me. Everything oh. after that was kind of meh. The no. Rock was okay. The, the Rock, if any movie summed up movies of the 90s, it was The Rock. I don't it was, know. It was Nicolas Cage at his peak. It was Sean Connery. It was Ed Harris. It was Jerry Bruckheimer producing it. It had a Hans Zimmer score. You could not get more 90s than The Rock. Oh, I'm not saying it was a bad movie. Like it, it was a, it was a pop, it was a fun popcorn movie. Is what yeah. it was, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of great popcorn movies that were like that mm-hmm. like he with with the hunt for red october like he really embraced that character like Ooh. there's line like you you remember line okay okay the rock does have their memorable line you're the man now dog and you're the man now dog you don't remember uh, that no line? that is from finding forrester oh is it i thought that was from the rock see no. again that's like Okay, I reemphasize my point then. I, that that shows you how much I really cared about. Yeah, I remember it, the rock, the, but the, uh, in Finding Forrester, he's helping the the young man write his novel. While the the young man's writing the novel, he's in the back, like getting bombed on scotch, and he's like, "You're the man now, dog." 
Um, it's all fun and games until he teaches your dog to sit. <laughs> no, the the memorable rock lines are "Welcome to the Rock," and uh, the line we used in the opening segment, which is "Your best losers go on about doing their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen." Yeah, but there's the line we also used: "Most things in here don't react well to bullets." We're we're doing really bad Sean Connery impersonations. <laughs> well, that that's the thing. More people remember bad Sean Connery impersonations than remember Sean Connery. And what part? What part did he play in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? What was the character that he actually played? Thomas Quartermain. Okay. Well, here's okay. Here's the thing right here: Sean Connery, twenty greatest movies ranked from best to worst. So let's see what this is real quick here. Oh, oh yeah, I can't wait to see this list. And then uh, we'll, we'll move on after this one here, because we do have to talk about the other side of Sean Connery, which is the uncomfortable side. Mm-hmm. Okay, scrolling down here. Please don't be clickbait with lots of shit. That's going to take forever to load up. Oh, God, yeah. Please don't be a slideshow. Okay, yep, it's loading up now. Okay, well, number 19, number 20 is the Anderson Tapes. Number 19 is the Russia House. Uh, number 18 is The Offense, 1973. I have not heard of any of these. Yeah, exactly. Same here. Um, The Longest Day, 1962, was ranked at number 17. Uh, The Molly Maguires, 1970. Marie, um... Marnie? Marnie, 1964, ranks at number 15. Uh, Murder in the Orient Express, 1974. I forgot Sean Connery was in that. Finding Forrester, from 2000, at number 13. Uh, from Russia with Love, 1963. You know that's my least favorite of the Sean Connery Bond films? Uh, Time Bandits, 1981. I completely oh. forgot that he was in Time Bandits. The, the totally be- forgot that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The best is the story of Time Bandits because it was, they were producing the movie and in the script they said, we need somebody who kind of sounds like Sean Connery. And one of the producers was like, well, how about Sean Connery? It's Sean Connery. <laughs> and they got Sean Connery. Uh, number 10, The Name of the Rose, 1986, which was a, uh, The Name of the Rose is an odd sort of film. It's an Agatha Christie mystery. Go figure. The Wind and the Lion comes in at number nine. The Hunt for Red October comes in at number eight. As it should. The Rock comes in at number seven from 1996. The Hill from 1965. Dr. No from 1962. Sean Connery really was, like... The James Bond, Sean Connery, because it, he, he had hair back then and he was so much younger. Like, he's not, like, like Sean Connery, as he got older, he grew more distinguished and more... Right. Like, he became a different kind of charming character in a different way as he grew older. Uh, the Man Who Would Be King, 1975, comes in at number four. Number three, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, Forgot yeah. about that. Completely forgot about that. I did not. That That's probably one of my favorite Connery movies. Number two, The Untouchables. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that choice. Yeah. All right, what's um, number one? And if it's entrapment, fuck them. Nope. Take a guess at what number one is. Uh, Goldfinger. It is. It's 1964 Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Goldfinger was the quintessential Bond film. What was the sci-fi movie that he did? It was really bad. Zardos. Z- Zardos. That's Zardos. What it was. Yeah, Zardos. Yeah, yes. Yeah. The gun is good. The penis is evil. And they had the statue with the mouth open that just spit guns everywhere. Yep. And that ridiculous outfit he had. Yep. And the gun he had is a Webley revolver, which I have one of. Of course you do. Of course I do. Of course. We need to get you in the Zardos outfit. Uh, no. Yes. Yes, mm. we do. Yes, we do. We need uh, to get you in the Zardos outfit. Negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. <laughs> so now... The downside that I'm sure quite a lot of people are bringing up. 
do you want to do that now or well i was gonna say first we got to talk about trebek because he he was just like a, a pretty wonderful person his semi-famous uh, rap feud with the nerdcore rapping community is about the only controversy I can come up with. Wait, I don't know about this. Oh. Fill me in. Oh, yeah. So there was an episode of Jeopardy a few years back where a woman who was on, one of the contestants, mentioned that she liked listening to nerdcore rap. And when he asked her what it was about, she said it's people who rap but they rap about nerdy things like computers and math and things like that yeah so so it's for nerdy people and alex's response was oh so losers Ooh. so you know what i remember that so the nerdcore rap community came out with a diss track called suck it rebeck oh i didn't know about that hold on okay i wonder if i could find that actual clip something i've never heard of but it doesn't sound like fun. I think it's very fun. It's called Nerdcore Hip Hop. It's Nerdcore Hip Hop. Yes. Um, it's uh, people who identify as nerdy, rapping about the things they love, video games, science fiction. Star Wars. Having a hard time meeting romantic partners. You know. <laughs> it's really catchy and fun. Losers, in other words. Well. Aww. Aww. <laughs> so, so that. Oh, no. Yeah. That led to... This suck it for Becky. Suck it for Becky. <laughs> suck it for Becky. What did you expect? I ain't mixing my words, but who the hell are you to talk? You're the king of the nerds. I'll take the daily double bet on my money. Now you in trouble, pal. <laughs> Who's the one that's in jeopardy now? I'll take how to be a dick for 500, Alex. Cause you're standing there looking like a phallus. You're a game show host, not a music critic. Why don't you STF you for a minute? What you know about nerdcore anyway? Nothing, cause you're ancient, old and gray. Call our fans losers. What you listen to? That big band crap from 1992? Who is this? Of course you do. I know SMC Lars? You probably watch uh, this is, there's chair. a couple of people on this. And disrespect, well guess what? Suck it, Trebek. So that is a, a compilation. It is... MC Lars, uh, Mega Ran. Yep, I've um, seen both of them. Shamelessly admit that I've seen I've seen them. I've seen MC Chris. Uh, Team Head Kick. I think that's everybody, but yeah. yeah. So there, there is a official Alex Trebek diss track. And then I just watched one of the last recorded episodes. Uh, it aired last night. That would be 11-12-2020. One of the contestants admitted that he was a adult D&D player and was very proud of his bard, who was Barty McBardface? Oh yeah, that's right. Yes, I heard about that as well. I the thing is that I've been the thing I've been racking my brain about is who are they going to get to replace him? There's already a, a thing up for Lavar Burton. Yeah, the next host. Yeah, uh, I saw that um, the Change.org petition for Lavar Burton to take over as of maybe three o'clock this afternoon had 58,000 signatures. I don't think LeVar Burton would be a bad choice. No, no. I he, think he'd be just fine for it. Actually. I think, yeah, I, I could not think of a reason why he couldn't. There's a lot of people who have said Ken Jennings. I don't think they could have him because, you know, they, every few years they keep pulling him out to do these tournament of ultimate champions. Mm-hmm. So you can't have him hosting and doing that. 
Plus, I never really liked Ken Jennings anyways. It was funny. Well, it wasn't funny, but it's kind of bittersweet. When he came out and said, yes, I have cancer and I'm going to beat it. And he was kind of jovial about it. He said, I have to beat it because I have two years left on my contract. You know, I mean, you just grace under fire, you know, you know, it was, it was really, it was one of those things. And for a while there, I heard he was doing okay. You know, he was like, yeah, I'm doing better. I'm doing good. Yeah. And, and, and pancreatic cancer is a particularly nasty form of cancer. Um, I lost an uncle to it and yeah, it takes you quick and it is not, there are not a lot of survivor stories of mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer, but I, re- I remember hearing uh, an interview with him on the Nerdist back when Chris Hardwick still did the Nerdist, and he was talking about like his hobby is he, he does like handyman stuff around the house, and he's like, yeah, if, if this Jeopardy thing ever doesn't wor- or doesn't ever work out for me, I can always go to doing like home improvement shows. Mm-hmm. So he he was just a a fine gentleman, and the world is a little less interesting without him. Mm-hmm. Now to go back to Sean Connery, we talk about his movies, we love his movies, we love everything he's done, but the thing is that he was also kind of a... He's kind of a dick. Kind of a dick. Kind of a dick. He was a a very kind of stuck-up person. He was a very everything just is a job and he was one of those people who saw acting as a job and kind of hated the people who thought like who idolized him mm-hmm. he hated his fans because he just wanted to do his job and be left alone but on top of that also super in supportive of spousal abuse you did an interview in which you said it's not the worst thing to slap a woman now and then as i remember you said you don't do it with a clenched fist it's better to do it with an open hand Mm. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't love that. I haven't changed my opinion. You haven't? No, not at all. You think it's good to slap a woman? No, I don't think it's good. You don't think it's bad? I don't think it's that bad. I think that it depends entirely on the circumstances and if it merits it. What would merit it? Well, if you have tried everything else, and women are pretty good at this, that they can't leave it alone. They don't want to have the the last word, and you give them the last word, but they're not happy with the last word. They want to say it again and and get into a really provocative situation. Then I think it's absolutely right. But, yeah, so he uh, went on Barbara Walters and was like, yeah, totally cool with smacking my wife every once in a while. Yeah, kind of. he said that on another show, too. So I'm like, yeah, I don't think there's nothing wrong with, you know, giving the wife a pat on the ass really hard. Or so. He said something like that. Yeah, something that. like that. And then and it was just like, whoa, dude, whoa, whoa, yeah. not cool. Not cool, Bond. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> having that idea about that kind of led into this discussion you and I were having around the fire of art versus the artist. Um, because we live in an age now where people are very hyper cognizant of people's extracurricular activities, and does that make it so we need to stop liking things because we find out that somebody is a s- sexual abuser or somebody has? See, I go back to I am a huge H.P. Lovecraft fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm unapologetic about it, and on my other page, on the Project Archivist page, and on my Project Archivist show, we've covered Lovecraft on there quite a few times, and it always seems to be, there's the one person out there who's like, how can you support this guy? This guy was a racist. Most of, most of his stories were racist-oriented, and so forth and so on. I really don't have a defense for that. I can't just say, it's a gray area, because like for me, I can't just say, well, it was a different time back then, things were different, and towards the end of his life, he actually did renounce a lot of that kind of stuff. 
there are they are right. He was a racist. He did not like black people. He did not like the immigrants and stuff that were coming over. And a lot of his stories, like the horror at Red Hook, there's a lot of stories that reflect uh, Lovecraft's racist views. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of like, yeah, I agree with you. He was a racist, and I don't think I like him as a person. Plus, he was also a very strange and odd individual. By the same token, I still like his fiction, and his his stories have influenced everybody in horror. If you're a Stephen King fan, influenced by Lovecraft. Everything has been influenced by Lovecraft. The movie Alien, uh, all of the Alien movies are very Lovecraftian. But I will say that new show that came out, Lovecraft Country, they went at it head-on. Our boy Banjo Jones, we were, I was talking to him by the fire the other night, and we were talking about how the new show, and I'll let, I'm, I'm not going on a tan, I'll, I'll let, you, let you get back to this, but in the show Lovecraft Country, that show is deals with very much uh, black characters, the main characters are black, and this whole show is very much about how much racism they're going through. Me and Banjo were both saying, we're like, you know, we like the show, but it beats you over the head with the racism in the show, about how much racism these people go through. I get why they did that, because that's, it's an indirect way of reflecting the racism that Lovecraft put in his stories and put out there. And they make direct contact with it. It's very clever how they did it. But we were like, man, it kind of just beats you over the head with it. Okay, we get it. These guys have got it bad. But at the same token, you know, where do you draw the line? What, right. At what point do you say, it's like, uh, I mean, uh, John Lennon. You know, John Lennon, everybody's a big John Lennon fan. But John Lennon also wasn't the greatest guy. You know, no, yeah. Steve Jobs also had very not racist but he was just kind of a dick oh yeah you know <laughs> yeah so steve, steve jobs was an asshole um you go back further and it's like you get to the founding fathers and it's like oh yeah yeah every one of them owned slaves mm-hmm. uh thomas jefferson very influential wrote a lot of the documents of the constitution also raped his slaves and was totally okay with that yeah so yeah it, it like these people did wonderful things do we need to erase that because he was a horrible person? And I don't think so. I think we just need to acknowledge more that he was a horrible person. And with act, who was the who was the director that I should know this, but I don't because I wasn't. Oh no no no! You're you're thinking of uh, the movie producer. Yeah, um, Harvey Weinstein. I, yeah, Weinstein. Weinstein produced a lot. Of movies. Yeah, like he was you know, the mover and shaker for most of the 80s and 90s Also an immense creep. <laughs> and so. just a, oh my God, absolute garbage human being and completely unrepentant for everything he had done. Mm-hmm. To this day, claims innocence that he never did anything. It's like, dude, you're done. Yeah. Just say you did it and come front and, and be like, yes, I did this. Now that you've lost everything, you've got nothing to gain by saying that you didn't do this anymore. Everybody thinks you're scum of the earth. You mm-hmm. know, enough of these actresses has come along. And the other thing is there were directors, apparently, that knew he was doing this kind of stuff, and a lot of people just turned a blind eye to it, which then leads into, like, I guess Tarantino was supposedly one of these people. Yeah. And Well, because it was you either turned a blind eye to it or you never worked in Hollywood again. Correct. At that point, it's like, well, are these people scumbags because they were aware of it and didn't say anything? You know, is... It, so, mm-hmm. no, none of it is right. None of it is cool. None of it is, is I don't, I don't know, I really don't have answers for it. Their, their behavior is reprehensible. It's, it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not at all agreeing with it. And these people should have gotten what was coming to them. Yeah. So it's like I the mean, farther you go back in history, though, like back to Lovecraft and the, the founding fathers and all this stuff. This is the way things were back then. It doesn't make it right. Right. But this well, is how everything was. Or, so, or when you get to the flip side of the coin, what about normal people 
who do controversial artwork. When I got looking into controversial artwork, one of the articles that came up was the uh, like 20 most controversial album artworks of all time. Oh, I see what you got on here. Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy. Well, yeah, that because yeah. because I I think I have that one somewhere. It's got new children on it. Yeah, it's got all the naked little kids in this weird psychedelic. Yeah. And it's either really obvious why it's controversial, or it's just like, wow, this is just crazy 1960s. So, like, the first one that comes up is the Beatles yesterday and today, which had them sitting there with, like, doll parts and, like, sides of beef. Mm -hmm. And this was considered to be, like, so profane. They, they had to sell it with like a, in, like, a paper sleeve so you can see it. Next one up is uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience, Electric Ladyland. Yep. Yep. Nude women on the cover. Yep. That, that's why you can't have it. John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Two Virgins. Because, yep. yeah, they're both naked on it. So next up is Rolling Stone Beggar's Banquet. And this is, the whole thing is... It's a, like, club bathroom with graffiti on the walls. But because it depicted a toilet, they couldn't show it. It had to come with a plain white sleeve just because it was a featured a sleazy-looking bathroom. Do you remember the Leonard Skinner? You, you're not old enough to remember this. Probably I am. I'm a little bit older than you. Leonard Skinner released their record just on the eve or just after they got into their plane crash. Oh. And the, lever, the record cover, they actually had to pull it back off because the record cover had them wrapped in flames on it. So they had to pull it back off. And when they finally released it, they had to release it with a paper sleeve on it, covering them up. Right. That wasn't so much of it being like deemed offensive. It was it was just offensive purely because the band had most of the band had died in a plane crash right right and, and, came out. and that was just weird coincidence so keep going down the list we get to blind faith 1969 naked underage girl on the cover not yep. sure how they got rid of that one yeah uh one of my personal favorites rolling stones sticky fingers 1971 with the close-up of mick jaggers junk Mm-hmm. In, in the black pants, I believe it was. In the leather black pants. pants. Yeah, leather pants, yeah. Yep. I don't got it in front of me. I can, I can remember it, though. Next, we have David Bowie, Diamond Dogs, which is like David Bowie, but his lower half's a dog's half, so... Mm -hmm. The Romantics also had a record that came out, which uh, had... Um, that's what I like about you on it. And the girl on the cover, at the time, she was very scantily clad, and you could almost like, see down her shirt and stuff. I think she was... 15 or 14 at the time. Um, she's still alive today. They had her on uh, the Drew and Mike podcast. We're interviewing her. Uh, we yeah, have, that would never fly. Yeah, we have Roxy Music, Country Life, another one, Naked Women. Mm -hmm. uh, Scorpions, Virgin Killer, another naked underage girl. This is another one of my personal favorites. The Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks, was banned just because it said the word bollocks. Bullocks is how they pronounce it. Bullocks. Bullocks. Bollocks. Yeah, bollocks or bullocks, I believe. I've, heard I, I've, both ways. I've always favored bollocks myself. The Slits Cut 1979, More Naked Women, Bow Wow Wow. Yeah, Bow Wow Wow, yep. Bow Wow Wow. Yep, that was an 80s. 1981. That, yeah, that was an 80s, like, like new age, punk, not new age, but new wave punky band. Thought based on painter Edward Monet's 19th century Les Dejournes sur El... Yeah, something French. <laughs> something uh, French. <laughs> the sleeve to Bow Wow Wow's debut LP featured his 14-year-old sister naked. Wow. Yeah, nothing about that's creepy at all. Nothing about that is creepy at all. Dio, holy diver, with the priest all chained up and being whipped by the demon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's a good one. Mm-hmm. 
Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, uh, featured a robotic rapist about to be punished by a metal avenger. Interesting. Uh, Nirvana's, or Nirvana's Nevermind, where you get to see the little baby's ding-dong. Yep. I remember that. Yep. There was an article I read last year about where that guy, that, that kid's like grown up now. Oh, yeah. The, I saw a picture for the like 30th anniversary yeah. of it when he recreated it in the swimming pool. Yeah. Oh, Ice Cube death certificate, just because it shows a body with a toe tag that says Uncle Sam. And now for something completely different. Greetings, O&D listeners. This is the Master Control Program from the Edit Suite. At this point in the podcast, a large section of the conversation was removed due to extreme ramblings probably brought to you by Rogen ingesting uh, THC gummies. We returned to the program uh, when we started talking about exploitation movies, so without further ado, enjoy the rest of the podcast. Power Man was very much based off of exploitation. You mm-hmm. know, the afro, the, the whole, like, he was... Like the Dolomite, like Kung Fu character well, or what have you. It, it's funny, the, I could be getting this wrong because in, again, in the Marvel exhibit, they talk about um, the whole reason they came up with Power Man actually stems from the black exploitation films. Mm-hmm. And because there was this theme of like the, the black exploitation Kung Fu, they created Power Man to be a sidekick to uh, the Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. And the Iron Fist was created to capture in on the 1960s kung fu movie craze mm-hmm. and then Bruce Lee and all that. Mm-hmm. So. I loved all the. I, I, okay, full disclosure, I have all of the Dolomite movies. I have all of them. I have Dolomite 1, Dolomite 2, Human Tornado, Petey Wheatstraw, Devil's Son in Law. Um, I was a huge Dolomite fan. I was also a, all of the black exploitation movies, Blackula, you know, all the the black dra- vampire movies. There's only three real monsters, kid: Dracula, Blackula, and Son of Kong. Son of Kong. It's a Futurama quote. Okay, I don't remember Son of. Kong. I do remember Son of King Kong. I think I remember that. But um, so yeah, I was in, I was into all the black exploitation films. And I used to love when I had my original paintball store. After the stop would clo- after the shop would close, we would order up pizzas and sit in the back room. You know, we had a large screen TV back there, and we would turn the lights off and we would watch all of these movies. We would watch like there's a scene in Dolomite where he he does this. He rolls off of this hill and he gets down and he reaches over and he blows up. He shoots a cop. He shoots two cop cars with a shotgun and both the cop cars explode. And he goes, "I bet you motherfuckers didn't think I was gonna do that. Let's see it again." And it does the whole scene over again. And there's a part where he throws a body out of a car, and it's literally just a dummy rolling down the hill. The only know? the only thing I remember about the Dolomite films is at one point, did he or did he not steal the devil's pimp stick? To that's become, Petey Wheatstraw, devil son-in-law, <laughs> to become the greatest pimp of all time. Yeah, that's Petey Wheatstraw, devil son-in-law. And and and, and hell is a is a room. It's a red room with a red light on and a table. And a, we, we should watch some of these. Okay, like Dolomite. Dolomite is a real stretch to get through to watch, which was really cool when, when Eddie Murphy did the thing on Netflix, the, the Dolomite movie. Not I, Netflix. I remember it was hearing Amazon. about that. I, it's uh, actually no, it was, really it good. was Netflix. It was Netflix, okay. And... It, he actually did it really, really well. And when they went back and they were when they were redoing the scenes from Dolomite, they did them pretty accurately. There's a scene in Dolomite where he's on the car. Like, they would just roll up. They didn't have permits to film this movie. They would just roll up, hop out of the car, film the scenes, get in the van, and take the fuck off. 
Like they 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 do one shots. So there's a part where Dolomite's got he's like over the the back of a cop uh, the back of the car and these the stereotypical white cops come up and they throw racial slurs at him and stuff like so Dolomite we heard you're out of prison look at this big bag of cocaine and like they they plant a bag a giant bag of cocaine on him he's like another frame up and he's just like sitting there and you can see like the glass like the mirror reflecting the light off of his face so he can get the shot and then he does this kung fu moves which are bad he throws a kick at somebody and misses the guy by a foot and the guy goes flying they left it in the movie. They didn't. They didn't go back and re-edit it. There's scenes where the microphones are just dropping in. Well, that. So if you look at that, and that um, added to the campiness and the charm of the movie, you knew you weren't. You knew you weren't seeing a cinematic tour de force when you were watching. Dolph, well, I mean, for, first thing you have to realize is that that's back when movies required actual film, and actual film was super fucking expensive. Yeah. yeah. And the uh, that was a big thing that came out in the like late '90s was these guerrilla filming movies. Mm-hmm. And that's what they were doing. They wanted to make movies for themselves, and Hollywood was never going to greenlight exactly. it. Exactly. So exactly. they went out and did it themselves. I mean, like you were saying, they didn't have permits to shoot in these places. Yeah. I think the best example of guerrilla filming was for the original 28 Days Later film to film the scenes in London where there's nobody on the streets. The uh, producers hired Nate or women to go out topless and stop traffic. So they could film no these. No way. Yeah. That, that, I, I remember hearing that. I can't say for sure if it's real, but, oh, man, I just love that story. So that's kind of what they were doing. They, they wanted to make these films. They didn't have. And nowadays, that's we live in this whole digital revolution where all the gatekeepers for media are gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at us. We're two white dudes podcasting in a basement to put this up on the internet. We don't have to go through a record company. We don't you have to. What? We don't have to apply to a radio station. We don't need FCA yeah. approval for everything that we do. All the gatekeepers that would have been us trying to get a show on a radio station have been removed. That's kind of what I tell people that are getting into podcasting. I'm like, we are punk rock. What we're doing now is punk rock. Like, no punk rock bands, no record company was going to come along and sign them, so they had to go out and create their music, play the clubs, create their own record companies, and get the music out themselves and do well, what they got to do. Go go back to, or call back to when we were talking about controversial album artworks, the Sex Pistols. They only put out one album, mm-hmm. and their one album was banned from record stores just because it had the word bollocks on it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I see all of this stuff it, it is punk rock. You know, it's, that's that's what we're doing for the most part. Well, the music industry as a whole has changed to a model where it is no longer about the sale of the music. It's about the sale of the experience. It's you will sell more music as a small independent artist going to shows putting your stuff on Bandcamp and Mm -hmm. having people like you enough that they want to pay for you, but not caring if people are stealing your music. I remember probably about 20 years ago, I was doing a training uh, for my work. I was going to a training session and it was in Chicago. So they put us up in a hotel. When audiovisual guys get together, one of the things we will do is everybody has the strangest, most eclectic taste in music. And we'll all listen to like... I listened to Irish folk music and nerdcore rap. Mm-hmm. I was doing a rigging show with a guy from Arizona, and his jam was Seal. We listened to a five-hour playlist of Seal albums just over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Uh, one of the guys I work with in my company locally, huge Hall & Everything's Hall & Like Wow. When, 2 o'clock in the morning, we're 
We're all burnt out as hell, and we're listening to Hall and Oates. This might be a good time to do this real quickly. The Hall and Oates hotline, where you can dial. Oh, in. dial and Oates. Yeah, dial and Oates, where you can dial in and you can request a. Well, you can listen. You can pick a number. Yeah, you to, can pick a number. There's one of four songs. We'll yeah. put, we'll put up the number, but yeah, it still works. Uh, yeah. I, I did. I introduced somebody to it a couple of weeks ago. I or no, I know the exact chain of events. We were watching the last week tonight with John Oliver. It was uh, with my girlfriend, Lisa. And he mentioned the, if you need to pick me up in this time of Corona, 1-800-DIAL-A-NOTES. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that can't work. I'm like, oh yeah, it totally oh, works. Yeah, it works yeah, and we, we stopped everything right now. It says something like, if this is an actual Hollow Notes emergency, you may press one for blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Press two for man Press one for Maneater. Yeah. Press two for... Oh God, I can't think of Hall I can't Oates, think of so. any Hall Notes songs right now. So, <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. But I guess that's a good yeah. thing. But um, um, yeah, but going back to what you were saying, like I find myself, and it's funny you should say this too, because recently uh, where I work at, there's a lot of times where I'm sitting in front of the computer, and I was sitting around looking for something to listen to, and I saw this thing on YouTube. It said Stoner Metal Playlist, and I'm like, sure, I'll put this on. And it was all really cool music that I'd never heard before. I'm a big Tool fan, and this stuff was very in the vein of Tool, but it wasn't Tool. And then all of a sudden, I found all these new bands that I'd never heard before. So I went out and did searches on them, and they're all on Bandcamp. So mm-hmm. it was like you said, like you know, I was like, you know what? I like these. I like these bands so much, and because they're out there just winging it and doing their own thing. I went and purchased a lot of these bands off of Bandcamp. There was a oh, band yeah. called Tuber that it's an instrumental band. Uh, they're heavy. They got guitars and stuff, but they're really trippy and psychedelic. I liked them a lot. I found a band called Truck Fighters, um, a band called 10,000, uh, 1,000 Mods I've gotten into. They're actually a little bit more commercial, but so I actually were like, I was like, you know what? I'm not nor- norm. I'm a big torrenter. I've got no problem saying I go out and torrent bands and stuff all the time, but for whatever reason, I didn't want to torrent these bands. I actually went out and bought their music because it was like, these guys are out here winging it they're doing their own thing there's no record company representing them they're out there busting their ass believe it or not i completely stopped torrenting music when spotify came out and i have been a premium i've paid for spotify since spotify first came out with youtube now uh, oh, I can't stand paying well, for YouTube. Well, but. You, I, well, for A, I don't get the ads, and B, they've got YouTube Music now. You, YouTube Music bought Google Play, apparently. So, yeah, it's still... I think that's the other way around. Well, either way, like, I'll pay the 10 bucks a month, and I use the YouTube Music app, and that's kind of my Spotify. And mm-hmm. everything, anything that I could want is on there. At first, I was like, well, I'm just... Because I listened to a lot of long extended mixes, like the Stoner Metal playlist. These were, like, two- or three-hour long playlists uh, that put together. And there's nothing that kills it me more when I'm sitting around the fire or sitting down taking a nap or trying to... Listen you know just chill out and an ad pops up in the middle of a song yeah that that's so, why that's why i paid for spotify for years it's just like you mean for ten dollars a month i can unlimited listen to whatever songs yeah. i want and you guys have a lot of the crazy obscure stuff i want to listen to so that's what it was for me with youtube i was like i listen to a lot of obscure stuff sometimes and i know it's on youtube so i didn't mind I already knew the setup, and then when YouTube Music came along, I'm like, okay, this is really cool. I'm digging this. So I was like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna go that route then. So, so, but you you do Spotify, I do YouTube. Yeah. You know, I love going to see shows and going to the merch booth and buying records of the group from the shows. That's what I did with Nerdcore Rap. Yep. When I went to the uh, MC Chris show. Lars was out there just sitting at the table selling you his CDs. It was him himself. Yeah. And uh, there was... Uh... There, there's... Oh, my God. There's a great album. It's MC... Or great music or song. It's MC Lars and MC Frontalot. And it's called The T-Shirt Business. And the whole yeah, song... there. The whole song about, is about the two of them. They're not really rappers. They just sell T-shirts. Yeah. Exactly. 
but but I'm I'm a yeah. This is me. I'm John, and I am a huge record slut. I would be if I could, um, I, I, but I, I I don't have this. You know, you know, my addiction is role playing game books. You right. Know, you know, you know how I am. I have that too. Yeah. But... <laughs> God, if people could have seen the hand expression you just did, that was hysterical. Um. Yeah, because why have one expensive? You're hobby? like me though. Like you want to die with this. You want to die with as much of this shit. Like like. My, my son-in-law, who's really cool, my son-in-law is the same way. Like, he loves going to yard sales and digging through and buying vinyl. And he's a much younger guy than me. But the, the fact, I look at him, I'm like, you know, it's really cool that you're young and you appreciate all this stuff, which is probably going to lead us to our next conversation about vinyl sounding the way that it does. Well, I was but, about to say, this is going to roll into uh, the conversation of the zen of vinyl records. Yeah, and I brought up, see, I'm old school, and when I was always brought up, when CDs and stuff came along... There was, like, I was one of those people that didn't really want to let go of vinyl. Because I used to hang out and work in different record stores. I worked at a lot of, like, underground, independent, like, alternative record stores. Well, so so here's the thing. Scientifically, yes, there is a difference in sound between vinyl and digital. However, it exists on a level that the human ear cannot hear. I know, but to me, it still sounds warmer. It's got a different feel to it. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have a warmer sound because of the acoustics of it. The reason vinyl has this warmer sound is because, again, the zen of vinyl records. Yeah, we we talked about this around the fire, and you brought up a lot of points that I really can't disagree with. Yeah. So first, first of all, there's a very powerful nostalgic feel for vinyl. And I'm, I'm of an age where I was not, CDs have existed as long as I've been alive. Mm-hmm. So I was the very tail end of records, but I never owned a record. I think my mom had a record player and we had like Barry Manilow album that she liked and a bunch of Christmas vinyl albums. But that was, she also had an eight track player. So, uh, but th- that was the, See, that I was vinyl cassette. So that was that was as, as much I knew about vinyl for most of my life. I grew up in the 80s. I was born in 1980. So as I started coming to deciding what I wanted to listen to music, that was when hip-hop exploded, is in the late 80s. That was the big thing in music, was everybody was listening to hip-hop. You had the big ones I remember was like Criss Cross, mm-hmm. House of Pain, yeah. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Um and many, many, uh, like, and other ones that I just wasn't allowed to listen to. So NWA, NWA, yeah. uh, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre. I gravitated to classic rock. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom grew up on oldies. I grew up on classic rock. So I got into high school, and you see everybody's wearing like Led Zeppelin T-shirts, and it's like, oh, hey man, I like Led Zeppelin. You're such a poser. I'm like, fuck you, dude. Name one. Name one Pink Floyd album that isn't The Wall or Dark Side of the Moon. And I was this weirdo because I listened to them because I actually liked listening to them, not getting high and listening to them. I was the same way. Yeah, I was, um, I was right in that boat. So, but that was that was kind of when I got into vinyl. It wasn't so much the sound of the vinyl records itself, but it was the experience of vinyl. It was... You went to a record shop. uh, There was one in Dearborn. I forget what it was called, but it was a used record shop on Mm -hmm. top of a music shop. And in the the attic, they just had tables with crates of vinyl. I remember being 16 and going down to a coffee shop in downtown 
uh, Dearborn for a sh- to a, listen to a punk rock show, and then we go over to the record shop and we just spend the whole night looking through vinyl records. I remember the very first vinyl record that I bought. It, it was a it was the Revolting Cox Double Live. You goddamn son of a bitch! The very first cassette that I ever bought because I bought more cassettes than vinyl because I had a cassette player in my car. I bought Depeche Mode's Greatest Hits. Uh, yes, I listened to these bands back then. Um, uh, that's okay. Uh, the very first cassette I ever purchased mm-hmm. for myself was the Beach Boys Endless Summer. Mm-hmm. So it was the experience of buying that record, and you had, you pick it out, and it had like the big artwork on it. Mm-hmm. It was wasn't this little plastic. That was half the fun. Was yeah. like reading the album notes and reading seeing it. who like who worked on the album, and because back when I was growing up, like Nine Inch, like industrial music was coming of age when I was growing up. So I had a lot of bands like Skinny Puppy. Nine Inch Nails was a little bit later in my in my youth, mm-hmm. but a lot of these bands would they knew each other because they toured with each other underground so you'd look at them and go oh wow trent reznor sang on this song right. or blah 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 from this band played on this song and i also remember um i bought a, i went out and bought a skinny puppy 12 inch single for texture and it was the transparent red vinyl oh yeah. you know like this there was cool things with uh, that stuff is starting to come back now so or so the picture records you yeah. know uh when i was in when i was in high school i I discovered ska music. I, I still have a soft spot in my heart, my heart for ska. Um, but one of the big ska bands of the the late or the mid '90s was the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Mm-hmm. They had see a, my ska was madness. The uh, they had a vinyl record that the vinyl was plaid, mm-hmm. and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, see that's an experience. See, well, then again, nowadays back in my day, like kids don't care about that stuff now. Like that's one of the cool things about my son-in-law. He got my daughter into vinyl, and her her entrance into vinyl was she really got into the Disney records. But they were like the Beauty and the Beast one had a picture of Belle on the front and Beast on the back of it. It was a picture oh, yeah. record. So her thing was going and collecting all of these cool Disney records. See, I don't I don't vibe on the the picture records because it's. I don't display them like that. Yeah. Those are really m- kind of meant to be just like hung in a frame. And yeah. I don't do that. I, I have vinyl. I want to listen to vinyl. Yeah. But so you well, have. I've come over here many times and you've had records playing. Oh, yeah. yeah. So. Um, so you have that. Then you have your setup. And every, everybody who listens to vinyl has their own vinyl setup. And it's a personal thing about mm-hmm. the, you finding the record player that's right for you, how you have it hooked into the speakers, what kind of speakers you have it hooked into. So it's very personal that way. And then it's the, you put the record on, you dust the record. It's ritualistic. Mm-hmm. So that's more into this of being a Zen thing. And when you listen to vinyl, most of the time, you're not doing other things. You don't put a record on and then like, all right, well, I'm going to fold laundry. See, I would. Because but this is a point that you brought up when we were sitting around the fire is, like nowadays, when you buy, you buy a song, you'll buy a song here and there. Whereas with vinyl, you're putting a whole record, you're listening to a whole album side. And you're listening to, like, like Pink Floyd The Wall is a great example. That is a record that tells a story all the way through. There's a couple of Nine Inch Nails ones that are like that. Um, like, you're, when, you're, when you're listening to an old Led Zeppelin record, you're listening to it as an experience. Yeah, the, the, you're not just listening to a song off Houses of the Holy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they were never meant to be listened to on shuffle. 
Mm-hmm. But see, I, I don't like to do stuff when I'm listening to vinyl because it's like you put it on and then 20 minutes later, you've got to flip the record. But that's part of the ritual. Exactly. That's so, part of the process. So it's because you've got to do that, it's it's more interesting to just kind of sit there and actually listen to it. Mm-hmm. You're in the moment. You're focusing on it. You're listening to the music the way the artist intended it to be listened to. And especially, I, lo- I collect a lot of comedy albums. So you're listening to the, the comedy and it's just like a set. You can't skip to just the fun stuff. Now, the only exception to this rule I'm going to make is, um, like, Dark Side of the Moon is when I, I have to listen. Like, there's many times where I'll be gaming. Like, uh, me and Banjo will be playing, like, Gaslands. And very frequently, Dark Side of the Moon is one of my records. It's one of my go-to records when I'm gaming to be in the background. I know the record so well that it it's enjoyable to listen to, but it doesn't distract me from my gaming. Right. But Dark Side of the Moon is one of those records where you kind of have to listen to it from beginning to end. So and, and see if you want it as background music, you can listen to it on uh, like just put it on your MP or put it on your phone yeah. and listen to it that way. When you're listening to it as a vinyl, it's you're listening to it because you want to kind of vibe it. Yeah, um, but I can still listen to it on CD or through Spotify or whatever. Right. But I have to listen to the whole album in order. Yeah. And a lot of Pink Floyd's records are are that way for me. The think, same thing with like The Doors and Led I Zeppelin. Think the, I think the first one, the first record I realized had to be listened to in order was Tommy. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Many of the Who records, are like all of those classic bands. Like nowadays, people don't write and record music and put it out to listen to it as a whole listening experience from beginning to end. They're looking for the couple of good hits that are on the record, you know, and maybe some filler songs. Um, like when I was growing up in high school, like um, I'm not by no means a Bon Jovi fan, but that was when in that era where people stopped writing records as a whole and the whole commercialization of we need to write hits yeah. came into effect. Yeah. So you'd like, you know, then the, the, the one song would become a hit, and the next song and the album become a hit, and the next song and the album become a hit. So you were trying to like, you know, it became like Katy Perryized, where every song on the record is written to be a pop song. So when that one fades out, the record company releases the next single, then the next single, exactly. then the next single. So when you're buying the record, you're essentially buying a compilation of singles. Whereas like The Who, like Tommy's a great example of not every song in that record is a great song, but the record as a whole is a it great record. Story. Yeah. Um Green Day in the mid 90s was like the one the one uh, maybe Oasis too, but those were two of the bands where they did they got that right. It was listening to their album was listening to a story and a lot of uh, their CDs both of them I think benefited. Well just the album had a vibe to it. Right. When you listen to it as a whole you got the vibe like Pussifer's new record they, I'm a big Pretty much anything Maynard does, I'm a big fan of. The new Pussifer record, actually all of the Pussifer records, they still write music that way where you can listen to the album all the way through and the album has a vibe as a whole to it. It's not it, The album might not be telling a story, but all of the songs and stuff are all going in the same direction sonically and how they work together rhythmically or so forth. Like, you get done listening to the record, you go, okay, that record's got that vibe to it. Right. You know, and a lot of that... That's just gone now, like pop music wise. Even you see it happening in country music too. Like old country music, I don't like old country. I don't like old country, but Johnny Cash. You put on a Johnny Cash record, you know, it's the same thing. That record, it's it's got a story to it of some kind or another. Like the old country records, country music has now reached a point where it's you've turned into a. Um, it's pop music with a twang. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's pop music. It's exactly the way to put it. So music has definitely changed a lot over the years, and it's just. Because and the thing the sad thing is is 
The new generation, kids nowadays, they're programmed and conditioned to be that way because you have things like Spotify where people are now recording these records. That See, I, I don't blame that. And I don't even think the way it's doing now is a bad thing. What I think we're seeing a lot of right now with music is, again, we talked earlier about gatekeepers being removed, is that you have, instead of going to a record company and putting out having them make well, an for album. For a while, the record companies controlled everything. Right. They controlled what now, to. now it's, okay, I am a teenager in my room. I am going to record a song on my iPhone and release it on YouTube, and it's just that song because that's just what I wrote. So it's... There was times when I was younger, you were you were a, oh, probably a wee little lad or not even born yet. A lot of the music that I listened to, you could only listen to a lot of the songs that I could late at night on certain radio stations, like public oh, yeah. radio. And then uh, 89X, which is a local station around here for me, but not from Detroit, they were a pop station for a while, and then they went over to quote-unquote alternative music. But for a little while, they would be alternative music from like 8 o'clock till 2 o'clock in the morning. So a lot of the stuff that I liked, I couldn't necessarily go to a record store to buy it, so I'd have to sit there with my, my cassette recorder, you I, know, the boombox, and then a song would come out, I'd hurry up and hit record, and you'd record songs that way. So you No, 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 stop, stop, stop! Once again, this is the Master Control Program. At this point in the podcast recording, all recording was paused by the cat walking across the keyboard. She decided she wanted to be cute and be more important than the podcast, and we all suffered for it. Oh, the cat. Okay, well, we lost a little bit due to act, random act of cat. So, you had to put a cassette into the boombox, and then if, if they played a song that you wanted, you know, that you really liked, and you knew it was coming, you had to be ready to hit the record button to record the song off of the radio to listen to it. Or you, you had to get somebody who had the, the cassette, and you'd put it in, and God help you if you put the the blank tape in the record and the, the mix tape in the one, because you'd over-record nothing. Well, you'd have to put, you had the cassettes had the tabs on the back. If the tab was punched out, you could record on it, but if the tab wasn't punched out, it you, the record button wouldn't work. So yeah. you'd punch it out, and then afterwards you'd go back and you'd put tape on it to make sure that you didn't record over top of it again. I, I did live through the glory days of the mixtape. Well, I'm still doing that now. I've got friends of mine where I'll give them a thumb drive. Mm -hmm. I've done it to a couple of my friends now. Um, um, I've, I've got a friend that's on the other side of the country, and I gave her a mixed, quote-unquote, thumb drive, which is kind of cool because thumb drives, it's like, okay, you, you, you got like a half gig or a gig thumb drive. You can put a lot of music on there. The downside is it's like, here's here's a bunch of music, and it puts the person puts it in, or they'll put it into their car, and it'll be like, now loading 900 songs. It's kind of overwhelming. Where back so, in the day, you'd give somebody a mixtape and have like 12 songs on it. You know? um, so I, I love reading stories about people doing weird things with audio media. Mm -hmm. um, like there is still a very vivid or vibrant, excuse me, a very vibrant cassette tape community. Um, yeah. Because um, if you've ever seen them, these mass tape duplicators a lot of times churches have them mm -hmm. because they'll do a service and they'll record it and then they have this massive table size thing with a hundred cassette tapes laid flat you put one tape in and hit a button and it instantly copies that to the hundred tapes mm -hmm. so the people who attended the service could instantly buy a copy of the recording and as a lot of the churches went to digital, those devices hit the secondary market, and a lot of indie bands would get them on the super cheap, 
and do exactly that. Hey, we we play this show, we recorded it, and at the very end, you put the tape in the tape duplicator, and everybody can walk out with a cassette tape of that exact show. Primus did well. Pearl Jam does that too, but Primus did something a few, uh, God, maybe ten years ago. I went and saw them live, and after you saw them the next day, you could go online and you could buy the concert that you had just went and saw the day mm-hmm. before as an MP3 and download it, and boom, you would have that concert. Pearl Jam, like there's a uh, station on Sirius XM, which is Pearl Jam, and they do a lot of that. Like Pearl Jam doesn't, like Metallica used to be this way. They just didn't give a shit if you recorded their shows. Well, that, So they started doing it themselves. I was going to say, that started with The Grateful Dead. Yeah. The Grateful Dead was one of the first shows where like they were just like, yeah, you bring your own recorder, and they would plug it right into the soundboard. Mm-hmm. Morant's cassette recorders are still a valuable commodity on the secondary market because they're just good recorders recording to cassette tapes. The downside is is that like I've got a box in my basement full of a whole bunch of old cassette tapes and they just because they're magnetic they well, lose their power whereas a vinyl like a, you can get a good vinyl from 30 years ago that's still in pristine condition and put it on your record player it's going to sound just as good as it did 30 so years ago the true audio files that is a selling point for them there's this kind of uh, I don't even know what to call it like almost masochistic view that every time you listen to this recording that you have on this cassette tape it degrades a little and the more you listen to it eventually it disappears and you'll never have it again well that's like that show that i did on my podcast where the guy was talking about people bootlegging records into russia the old soviet union when that music wasn't allowed so they would take these records and they would print them on old x-ray films Mm -hmm. and you only got about six or seven plays out of them because they were recorded on old x-ray film they used that as the material to press the records on and they would roll them up in their sleeves and you'd go up and you'd be like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for Chubby Checker. And you'd pay him like so many rubles and they would give you this like fold out like plastic record and you would listen to it as much as you could. And then you'd go buy another one because every time you play them, the sound would degrade a little bit more because right. the, the, the material was so soft. There, there was another music craze where um, guys doing vaporware or vaporwave mm-hmm. uh, would record onto floppy disks, three and a half inch floppies. Yeah. And it was, you could fit, I think, 22 minutes of music as an MP3 on a three and a half inch floppy. And they were going around on Craigslist anywhere they could to find floppy disks that they could transfer the music onto. My sampler still runs on those. So <laughs> so it was like, okay, uh, this one artist made a song about SpongeBob. So how many yellow three and a half inch floppy disks do we have? Oh, we've got 25 of them. Okay, this is a limited run of this song of 25 yellow floppy disks. They custom print a logo on them. They put them up on their website, and 20 only 25 people would get them. Yeah, but, you know. So, and and uh, this. That's the, going a little too far. Like so, cassette tape. I'm, I'm never going to embrace cassette tapes again because I have nothing that plays cassette tapes anymore. You know, even though I've got these cassette tapes in my basement, I'm never going to get because I'm, I'm like that. I'm, I'm, looking, some, I'm like, somewhere around this basement. I have an old Moran stack that will play cassette tapes. But that's also a thing in vinyl now where you see these incredibly small print runs and like one time pressings. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found it's a Mario and chill. And it's somebody did kind of synthwave Mario music. And they did a record pressing of it. And I think they did like a 5,000. And I found it. And I was like, oh, man, I should get that. And like two days later, went to buy it and was completely sold out. So I had it on, an Amazon, on my Amazon wish list. And what happens a lot 
So this is a tip to anybody. If there's something you look for and it's sold out, keep it in your wish list on Amazon because Amazon's stock system is automated. So if one person returns something, everybody who has that on their wish list will get an email that, hey, this is back in stock, even though the quantity is one. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. So somebody returned one and I got it. I was super happy because now it meant I have that record. And that's one of the other, one of the final components of the Zen of vinyl is the search for vinyl. It's not so much that you have the record, but it's the story of how you got the record that makes it almost more enjoyable. So it's going out to bands and going to... It's like me with books. Yeah, going out to bands. Actually, you too. We're both that way. Yeah, Going out to bands, seeing their show, and getting the vinyl from them. Mm -hmm. Or when the citywide garage sales happen, hitting all the garage sales and going and digging through everybody's vinyl to see what you got. Yeah, that's my son-in-law. That, that's how I got my copy of the Cheech and Chong album with the giant rolling paper in it. I was garage sailing. This guy had like a little milk crate with maybe 20 albums in it. And I was over there looking for it and he had it. And he had three copies of it, but only one of them had the rolling paper. And I made sure I grabbed that one. See, what I would do when I was younger, I would buy the record... I would go home and I would immediately copy it to cassette and then I would put the record away. Nowadays, the equivalent to that is you've got the record players that copy to MP3. Mm-hmm. And I've been real, real tempted to do that. See, and the thing is, it's first of all, modern records when you buy them, a lot of times they'll come with a code for a digital download. Exactly. Yeah, that's the way it was when I got my CD for the new 1000 mod CD. Right, but there, there's, there's certain things I have that I really do need to convert to mp3 uh one of the very first things mel brooks ever did in his showbiz career was he recorded a comedy album with uh rob reiner show edit that was carl reiner i was trying to think of not rob reiner um called the Ten Thousand year old man and it was this interview with this ten thousand year old man who had just woken up in the modern day this was recorded in the 50s and I own this album. One of my favorite Queen albums is A Kind of Magic. So I wanted that on vinyl. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's also one you have to listen to the whole way because it's the unofficial soundtrack for Highlander. Mm-hmm. When the Night at the Opera, another great Queen record. Yeah. When a kind of Killer Mag- Queen. Yeah. When a kind of magic came out, they didn't do a vinyl release of it in the US. They did a vinyl release of it in the UK. Many, many, many years later. Uh, they did a vinyl pressing in the U.S., but the vinyl for the U.S. is a single sleeve, whereas the vinyl for the U.K. had a fold open. You know what? Now that you say that, because I remember buying mine, I went over, this is obviously when I was younger, long before 9-11, you could go over from Detroit to Windsor, Canada. All you had to have was your driver's license to get over the bridge, yeah. you know, and make sure that you're not going there to screw around. So we would go over there because they had the record stores in Canada they were easier to get imports over to Canada than it was in the United States. So I remember buying that record over there, and it was different than the one in America. Exactly. And I couldn't figure out why until now Now that you said that. It makes sense. I didn't at the time. I was just at the record store, and I'm like, this, what's, you know, and I'm looking at and my girlfriend's going, I'm like, this is, this is not the same. This is Which, different. So I think this is a, a good place to call the episode. We, we got a lot of good conversation. So this yeah, is. Yeah, I'm happy with it. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, this is John. And this is Rojan. End of line. Welcome to Collar Notes, your emergency Hall and Oates helpline. To hear one on one, please press one. To hear it go.
Please press 2. To hear Manita, please press 3. To hear Privatize, please press 4. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far Cause you know it don't matter anyway You can rely on the old man's money You can rely on the old man's money It's a bitch girl, but it's gone too far Cause you know it don't matter anyway That money, money won't get you too far, get you too far Oh.